Good morning. It's a joy to be here. And I almost didn't recognize that young man from 20 years ago when we, when we started the church. And David, you looked a lot younger then as well. Now he, he, doesn't, he doesn't change in his age. Um, but uh, Kathy and I are just thrilled to see what the Lord has done uh, with uh, a group of people and David and Narina felt for many years that there should be a Christian family centre church up in the hills. And uh, they uh, listened to the voice of Jesus, were led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, my role was just to give a little shove occasionally. <laughs> and uh, so uh, it's terrific. We've attempted um, uh, 25 uh, daughter churches uh, since 19, mid-1980s. And we've got uh, around, I think, 14 up and running. That's churches and outreach groups. And there are four indigenous outreach groups. We don't call them churches. Uh, Armata, Ernabella, Warnham in Western Australia, in the desert areas, and also Docker River. And they're led by women pastors, Aboriginal leaders. Some of them are coming down to our church together, which we meet every year for two days. And so that's uh, a real thrill in our hearts that we have indigenous groups We've got a church in Alice Springs, and uh, I'm so you've got Rebecca Matson sharing next Sunday, David, and Rebecca's a wonderful pastor along with her husband. Uh, we just had some meetings. I was up there just the other day, and uh, we were looking at property, and one of the guys said, uh, we've been doing Indigenous ministry for decades. We don't know of churches in Australia that have multi-ethnic Indigenous groups. So we have, uh, I think, seven different people groups. Indigenous people groups speak different languages. And uh, so 80% are Indigenous people, uh, 20% are white fellas. And uh, we say, if you want to join that church, if you're a white fella, you roll up your sleeves and you serve. You serve the best interests of our Indigenous people. So it's a truly integrated uh, church, and we're just thrilled uh, at what God is doing there. There's probably a couple of hundred people as part of that church, one of the largest churches uh, now in Alice. And so we're just thrilled to see what God is doing and, and what he's doing here and your prayers. For, for example, your generosity has provided the vehicle that Pastor Ben and Rebecca used to actually go bush. And uh, for uh, Ben and others, Dan and others in the church that were so generous just a couple of years ago. So we are a group of churches that work together to advance the kingdom of Jesus and to do as much good uh, to our fellow human beings as possible. Uh, my first love is the Christian Family Centre, um, and uh, I think my second love would have to be the CRC denomination, but don't tell anyone that. So I've been leading our denominational family uh, in Australia now for 16 years, but I'm at heart a pastor of a church and also just a leader of a group of pastors as we work together. And to see what God has done to a church of, um, um, you know, say 65 to 70 people that started, men, women and children. David says 65, I say 70, but we figured out, I counted all the pregnant women. <laughs> I counted those five babies. So, um, uh, but to see now a church of around 250 people, our latest figures here, and uh, who knows in 10 years' time that you could be 500 people with your own church facilities because you're coming to the point where you're not going to be able to house the kids and, and, uh, and all the activities you want to do. So uh, uh, you're, you're on a journey. This has just begun. Um, I feel like uh, we've just begun. A lot of people think, oh, 40 years. It just has gone so quickly. And I'm more excited today about Jesus 
and helping people than ever before. And I trust that uh, my thoughts um, would be helpful. David mentioned the book. Um, the, uh, I've tried, my team have been saying this thing, Bill, write down your stories, write down what you've learned, help the new pastors. And we're starting a new church at CFC South and uh, my daughter Nikki and her husband Tim will be um, uh, involved in leading that and uh, Dan and Serenity Pazovac. And I've said to Tim, I said, every leader, get them the book because I share the stories of what we've learned and so it's not meant to be a theological book, but lots of stories that actually outline the values that we hold, the vision that we have, and uh, fundamentally the things that I believe and, and we believe as, as a group of churches. That, uh, and I would encourage, if you're new to the Christian family, to get hold of it and read it, reflect on it. Um, I'd like to also honour David and Narina. Um, they are... They're just two of the best people you could ever meet. They really are. And, uh, um, and David uh, uh, was with me at the Seton Church for, for 20 years he served there. And um, twice, twice, three times a week he would drive down from Hawthorne, a non-salaried pastor. Then he became a salaried pastor. And he and Narina have been just fantastic. We wouldn't have the Christian Family Centre at Seton, really, um, if it wasn't for people like David and Narina. Uh, the initial team, when I came in uh, 40 years ago, I was 24. Uh, David was a little bit older. He was the old man, and uh, he doesn't realise how much he influenced me just by his character and his life and his maturity in areas where I was incredibly immature. And so David and Narina are fabulous people. Narina was our first bookkeeper. She did all the books, and she was excellent. Uh, and so, uh, David and Irina, uh, it'd be remiss of me not to honour you guys for obeying Jesus and, uh, and seeing a fantastic work that's been established and to be able to hand that over to Pastor David. I mean, it's hard to let go of fabulous people. The initial 65-70 and then David and Irina, right-hand man, and then David was another right-hand man and his wife at, at Seton and we'd, as he developed as a pastor. But it's a thrill to be able to do it. And, uh, and to see David and Judy being a top journalist and then God called him into ministry and uh, worked with us for, for many years at Seton and now to be leading the church here is uh, wonderful. So David and Judy, you've got two of the best people here too. Um, it, it hurts a lot when you have to give up people but the pain is taken away when you know you're doing it for Jesus and you're expanding the kingdom, the kingdom of God. So we now have another group of around 30 or so people who live in the, the uh, hills, the, sorry, the south area that we're looking at commencing a new uh, daughter church down south, somewhere from Hallett Cove to Morfitt Vale, who knows? So it's going to be exciting. I'd also like to honour the team. David and Jenny Racks are fabulous people. They, they were just pillars in the church. Uh, Wayne and Angela Buckerfield, again, pillars and workhorses. Uh, Dan Potter and Jess, who more recently came on the team, fantastic and, um, and also Trevor and Margaret Pillar, who are dear friends. We, we go back so we go back right from the beginning. Trevor and uh, Judy uh, and Margie were uh, still two of our best friends, and um, so we love them dearly. And they were part of the initial team. They're overseas at the moment, but the team and all of you who have served, and the new ones that have come on recently with Megan and and um, uh, Sam, and then the new ladies that are, that have come on board. Staff members, fantastic. So uh, it's a great team. Um, we've been sharing the, the series, The Church We Can Be. Uh, we've covered what's at our core, the life together, 
one heart, one purpose, diverse gifts, many expressions. And I want to share some thoughts uh, before we conclude today on uh, the end game. What is the end game of all this? It's to be more and more like Christ. Uh, There are several key passages uh, that underpin everything I believe about Jesus Church. Um, Just a few passages of scripture that have guided me in all the things that I've been able to to outwork and practice. And and I think probably two of the greatest scriptures would have to be the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And you may have heard me talk about them before, but these are the two great statements of Jesus. The Great Commandment, when they tried to trick Jesus in Matthew 24, they tried to trick him, you know, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and and they said, well, you know, which one's the greatest commandment? And and, uh, he just said, you know, he reduced the whole Old Testament. This is an amazing thing, in, in two sentences. Genesis to Malachi, Jesus reduced it down, the irreducible minimum of what the Old Testament is about It's about the worship of God and the service towards people. Because love God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, he goes, and love your neighbour as yourself. And that's all about worship. It's about ministry. And uh, so he he closes the Old Testament era by summarising it and saying it's all about that. Forget the smells and bells and sacrifices and all that stuff. It's all about one's heart that is attuned to God and offering him worship. And it's doing as much good to your fellow man, loving your neighbour as yourself. And so it's, it's the more you're connected with God in a vertical relationship, the more it shows itself in you doing good to your fellow neighbour. You know, Billy Graham went to be with the Lord this week and he was one of my heroes, has been. And if you want to read a good book, just as I am, read Billy's story. But what an amazing person. Um, and again, all the eulogies. And uh, forget some of our terrible press in Australia. I could have thrown a a shoe at the ABC presented the other day where he kind of connected Billy with the bombing of Cambodia with Richard Nixon in 1970. I thought, uh, you know, fake news, exaggerations and stupid stuff. When every US president, a Republican and Democrat, has eulogised him because he's been their pastor, prayed with them in difficult times, not supporting their policies and stuff like that. But I just think, you know, Billy exemplifies the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. Of, of a genuine humility in worshipping God and doing as much good to your fellow man as possible. And uh, from bailing out Martin Luther King out of prison in, in the early 1960s to making sure that down south when they uh, said you cannot have black people in your crusades, they well, I'm not coming down. And he just, he, this is 1952. They're way before the civil rights thing started. In South Africa, they said you can't do it. He said, well, I'm not coming. And uh, so he was able to influence Mandela and others. And so a person who just did as much good, he exemplifies the great commandment. Loving God means you will add value to people's lives. If someone says they're a Christian, they love Jesus, but they hate their neighbour, they can't be a Christian. It's as simple as that. And the great commandment is, Jesus said, that's what it's all about. From Genesis to Revelation, that's what it's all about. And then he initiates the New Testament era after his death, or just before his death and then after his resurrection, before he goes back to heaven, he says he gives us the Great Commission. The Great Commission is, is to, to go out and reach lost people with the message of love, the love that God has for people that's been revealed through Jesus and his death upon a cross. It's about connecting people into a loving community made up of fellow believers in Jesus like this. And 
to teach and train people to be obedient disciples of Jesus. So to me, the great commandment and the great commission are foundational. And in the book, I explain that in some detail. But you know, Matthew 24, or 22, the great commandment, Matthew 28, the great commission. Dr. Luke, who writes the book of Acts, a medical doctor, brilliant historian, accurate man, and 27 years after the events, he writes the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul's in prison in Caesarea. And uh, so he researches and he actually finds Mary, the mother of Jesus. And uh, in his gospel, the gospel of Luke, you actually discover Mary's deepest thoughts. Matthew, who was there, one of the 12 disciples. John, who was one of the 12 disciples. Mark, who was there. Don't record anything of Mary's feelings, but it was Luke, a good doctor. 27 years later, he wasn't even part of the 12, he wasn't there on the day of Pentecost. But when he did his Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts, he actually, Mary, for example, shares her heart and and it says the things that she treasures, she probably would have been 75 years of age then, she shares and Luke records them. And so we have the story of Mary's perspective of what happened when when she was impregnated through the Holy Spirit and, and and the, the eternal son was to be born as Jesus uh, through her. And so Luke is brilliant, and he's not only an accurate historian, because everything he recorded, archaeology has actually um, uncovered it. For example, the, the, the book of Acts, wherever the, the first church went, wherever, Luke, wherever uh, Paul went, Luke recorded, and they've dug those places up. I've been to those places. I've been to Laodicea. I've been to to Ephesus, and uh, he's totally accurate. And so Luke is a brilliant historian, accurate, but he's also a marvellous storyteller. And uh, they say that the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are two of the most beautiful books ever written in in ancient literature and in modern literature. He he can tell a story in in a paragraph that takes your breath away. The historians say that the storm story, the storm wreck, when Paul gets shipwrecked, it's one of the best shipwreck stories ever written. You're there, you're like, you're hanging there with Paul. It's like he's able to take a whole drama. He's a, he would made a, would have, his scripts should be made into Hollywood movies. He's able to, to get you in, that you feel it. And so when he researched what that Jerusalem church looked like, that first church, he interviewed everyone. And in a few, in a few sentences, he captures, he describes what... What a church that embraces the great commandment and the great commission looks like. And if you want a picture of what the ideal church should be, if you want to know what has guided the Christian family centre, it's the Acts 2 passage, Acts 2 verses 39 to 47, just 11 verses, where Dr. Luke describes what a New Testament church should look like, people that really outwork the great commandment and the great commission of Jesus. It's the best description. It's the ideal model of what church should be. And I can tell you, folks, it's been the best diagnostic tool for me. I mean, I read lots of books on church health and and, uh, church growth, but the best diagnostic tool is to grab Acts 2 and say, how are we faring? How are we faring? Are we in line or are we, do we need to turn back our hearts to Jesus and say, Lord, help us to get better aligned? You know, and uh, as an example, a few years ago, we realised we weren't seeing enough healing miracles in our meetings. And because uh, in the book of Acts, it says that people were healed of physical illnesses, that people who were bound by demonic spirits were released. People who were sick and ill physically, emotionally were getting healed. 
And so we um, realised, hey, we're not seeing enough of it. So we brought Pastor Ian Miller in, who specialises in gifts of healing and prophetic words, and he came and ministered to us and shared with our leaders. And uh, secondly, um, he also, we set up the healing clinics that, that operate in the life of the church. And we have seen the number of healing miracles ratchet up. Not everyone we pray for gets healed. We can't guarantee that. But I tell you what, we've seen a significant increase. We've just had two people with grade four cancers. The doctors say, we think you're fully in remission and you're free of it. And so they were heading to finish life on earth. Other people, no, they've gone to be with Jesus. So we can't guarantee healing, but I tell you what, we give it the best shot and we pray for people. My wife had a serious injury where she busted her shoulder. In fact, the story is recorded here. I took her overseas with me to Ghana and she slipped in the bathroom, wrecked her shoulder, and it was going to require massive surgery. You read all the... She's a nurse and nurse educator, and the specialist said, man, I don't know if I can fix this. We prayed over a period of two months. She's been completely healed of it, totally healed. And you could see the bone fragments that were smashed in the shoulder. Amazing. Because our faith level increased because we saw the book of Acts saying, you know what, they believed. They trusted Jesus. They weren't moved by their circumstances or they weren't moved by their feelings, by what they could see and what they could hear. They were moved by what they would believe and what they could believe about Jesus and his power to intervene in our lives through just simple faith. And so we've seen that. Um, and, and we've seen as that diagnostic tool of Acts 2 has helped us at Seton. Right now we're looking at the number of people coming to Christ and the number of small groups. We don't have enough people coming to Christ each year. Maybe a hundred men, women and children come to Christ and we think a church our size there should be maybe 300, 350 people coming to Christ. So we're saying how can we ratchet up evangelism? We can't make it happen. We can't save a soul. Only Jesus can. What can we do to ratchet up the area of our asking people to come to church and also to share our story and the number of small groups. And so, so that has become an amazing diagnostic tool for us, Acts chapter 2. And it's the best descriptive passage that we have. And then the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle, Jesus, the great commandment, great commission, Luke, Acts chapter 2, the Jerusalem church, the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, he records some fantastic statements about church. The best one that has really moved me deeply would have to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. And again, the book is premised on Matthew 22, Matthew 28, and uh, Acts 2, and then the Ephesians passage. And I would think that this would have to be the best prescriptive passage on, on how to actually do church. And he shares that it's only when a church is lovingly united that ministry and all its many diverse expressions can flourish. And so you would have, you would have done that, that subject. You see, for church, if people hate each other and don't forgive each other and are critical and gossipy and slanderous and, and like behaving badly, the Holy Spirit gets grieved and therefore it stymies the potential for ministry to flourish. But where there's love and unity flowing in a body like this, it's the ideal environment for all the gifts that God has given. And God has given every one of you at least one gift. And then in a, in a loving, united environment, you are encouraged to use that gift, whether it's music, whether it's technical, whether it's preaching, whether it's with kids, whether it's doing Barbies, whatever. You have a gift that should be used to serve people. 
a gift that Jesus has given to you. And so um, Jesus' love flowing in his bride will enable Jesus' ministry to be facilitated so that his church will function as a body. And so Paul tells us the logical end game of a lovingly united and diversely gifted church family is that we will become more and more like Jesus. We don't produce disciples, disciples of Bill Vasilakis or disciples of David Smythe or disciples of, of David Smythe. We, we, we I'm confused, David. Which one are you? Are you Smythe or are you Bland? You're Bland, you're Smythe. Okay, I got that one. See, any church that says you're going to build a disciple, you become Christian family centre disciples, become disciples of Bill Vasilakis, that's a cult. And cults are irresponsible, unaccountable. I know Christian cults where people end up tithing their 10% to the leader. That's ridiculous. We give our money to Jesus and to the poor. And so discipleship has to be under Jesus Christ. We say we want you to become more and more like Jesus, not more and more like me. You don't want to be like me. I know me. And I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a work in progress. And uh, I haven't arrived yet. But I'm getting better as I'm getting older. Isn't that right, Spinner? <laughs> we should be getting better. We should be becoming more and more like Jesus. That's the ideal. And, um, and so um, I told my daughter yesterday a story. I took my grandchild to the beach and, and um, doing a sort of nippers, nippers you know, they surf life. And there was this little kid in the water with his mummy, not with, with his sister, and the current was strong, and it wasn't part of little nippers, and the kids are on boards, and I see this board coming towards this child, and I'm like, where the heck is its mummy? And I look around, and there's this mummy way back there talking to a group of other mummies, and I'm thinking, I'm about to jump in the water to rescue. So anyway, the board just missed the kid, thank the Lord. Anyway, so um, I did point to the mummy in a very aggressive manner, <laughs> with my Greek eyes flashing, and when she came, I said, honey, I said, listen, I said, the water's rough. He's only about three or four. A board nearly came back. I said, you just got it. He could drown in 30 seconds. And she goes, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry. And my daughter said to me, dad, you didn't do that. That's called mummy shaming. <laughs> And honey, I did it the nice way. She, you shouldn't do things. Anyway, so she thinks I'm getting worse as I'm getting older. My wife thinks I'm getting better. Anyway, but we should be getting better. We should be getting better to become more and more like Jesus. I want to read to you specifically what Christ-likeness looks like as I bring this, this message to, to, to its finale. Because verses 13 to 16 describe what Christ-likeness really looks like. And you can measure yourself and we can measure our church. So the verse, first six verses are about love and unity. Then verses 7 to 12 are all about ministry. So Paul moves from unity to ministry for maturity. He says the reason why we're lovingly united and work towards love and unity so that we can release ministry and all the gifts so that Every gift can flourish, that the body can be strong, so that we will become more and more like Jesus. And this is what he says, until we all come to such unity in our faith 
and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord. Measuring up to the fullness of Christ. And the Amplified Version says, the completeness of personality, which is nothing less than the standard height of Christ's own perfection. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching like ships, to and fro between chance gusts of teaching and wavering with every changing wind of doctrine. Man, we've got to be solid. Our core is that we're biblically grounded. That's our, our, our guiding compass is the word of God. Not my thoughts, but what God's word says. Our true north is Jesus. And our objective is to release the Father, the Heavenly Father's love for people through us. And so he's saying here, we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love. I love this. It says, in all things, speaking truly, dealing truly, living truly. Growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. The church in all its various parts, closely joined and firmly knit together by the joints and ligaments with which it's supplied. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So Hills Christian Family Centre, what should we look like if we're really operating as Jesus intends us to operate? Well, we should be beautiful, effective, powerful. That's what Christ-likeness is. Because the imagery of the Ephesians letter, and I've mentioned this in the book, is that He presents it as a beautiful bride. We should be a beloved bride, intimately loved. I love the Apostle Paul, how he uses the bride-bridegroom imagery in Ephesians 5. And he says, men, women, remember what it was like when you were caught in your girl, when you were engaged, when you got married, the honeymoon period. Do some of you remember that? I mean, I can't believe, I'm I'm at university, uni, I'm running different ministries, and I had to see my fiance. I didn't care if it was 11 o'clock at night, even if I just dropped in for five minutes just for a squeeze and a cuddle. That's all, no touching, just cuddling. And, and uh, you know, we, we waited till the day we got married before we consummated our relationship because we were totally committed to Christ. But I loved her and I wanted to be with her. It's, it's unnatural to say, well, you know, like, I don't want to see you. Well, let's just have a meeting once a week. No, no, no. Like Paul says, it's like a bridegroom and a bride. And when you think of a bridegroom and a bride, there's passion, there's intimacy. And, and yeah, and the allegory, the Ill, there's no question Paul's talking about sexual intimacy, bride, bridegroom. And he says, that's the kind of love that should be between the bride, the body of Christ, the church, and Jesus, the bridegroom, intimacy, passion, like real love, devotion to him, loving him with all of our hearts and letting him love us. See, Christ-likeness involves growing in our knowledge of Jesus and growing in our experience of Jesus. Now, after being married for 40 years, it's different. It's different now to when it was when you are in your early 20s. But it should be deeper because you understand it. it's not just skin deep. It's actually you know the person, you understand them, you live with them, they're part of your life. 
I saw the film The Notebook last night. I just watched that, you know, it's just a, I think one of the best films. I don't know if you've ever seen that film, The Notebook. I mean, I just weep through it. Like James Garner and, you know, and Gina Rowland, oh man, alive. And I think, and I just felt such a sinner. I thought, I don't have that sin. Oh, I, I was repenting about my attitude towards my wife watching that film. It's a good Christian film, actually. I think it has good values. I made her two cups of tea in bed because of it. I thought, do you want another cup of tea, sweetheart? I mean, she says, what's happened to you? I even bought her some red roses on Valentine's Day a day late because I was in Alice Springs and she was shocked. She goes, who bought those? <laughs> so there's still blood flowing in these old veins. Fellas, girls, you know what it's like. The passion, the intimacy, the love. And he says, you know what? If we are operating as we should be, we should see ourselves as a beloved bride and to know that we're intimately loved by Jesus. And the natural response is that you just want to love him in return by doing good deeds, by making sure your life measures up to to your calling. We love him because he loved us. You don't get saved by loving Jesus. You get saved by allowing him to love you and he revealing his love through his life on earth and through his death on a cross. The cross is the prism by which we see God's love. You see love that is selfless, sacrificial, unbelievable. That a dad should, should give his life to his child, give, give the life of his child to save us. You know, people will give their lives to save good people, heroes. We know that. But to give your life to people who have hurt you, who have offended you, who have sinned against you, while we were ungodly, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, well, you change your behaviour first and I'll save you. You change your attitude first and I'll save you. He says, no, even in your sins, even in your darkest time, even when you had your fist raised against God and you were hurting other people, Jesus died for you. He loved you first. And when you see his love on a cross, him hanging there, his blood being shed for to cover your sinfulness, it melts your heart and you want to love him in return. And that's what the church, that's what Christ-likeness is. It's, it's about being a beloved bride, a healthy body, working cooperatively together. Every part of our body is important. Every one of you is important. You might say, I'm just a little toe. Or you might say, no, no, no. I'm just the useless appendix. You can cut me out and nobody's going to miss me. I had mine cut out when I was about seven. Recently, they found that appendices are really important. True. Any doctors here, they found that your appendix is really important. If you don't have an appendix, you're missing out on stuff. Now I know what my problems are. There's a, there's a particular bacteria that the appendix actually holds that is important for gut health. And your guts need to be healthy. So if you don't believe me, check out Mr. Google, who'll tell you all about the importance of the appendix. So don't tell me and say, I'm just a useless appendix. I'm a nobody. You ain't a nobody. You're a somebody. You're loved by Jesus. You're part of his bride. And you're part of his body. And every part of your body is important. And if you say, oh, well, I've got a gift, but I'm not going to use it. I'm part of this church. You're robbing the body. The body will be disfigured. The body will be dysfunctional. Every part of the body is important. You are important. Find what gift you have. Discover it. 
develop it to the max and deploy it for God's glory. So every part of the body is important. Christ-likeness involves us growing in our interconnectedness and then an empowered army, spirit-empowered authority. In Ephesians, we see the imagery of the bride, body, and army. And the final verses of, of Ephesians are magnificent. See, Paul was changed to, chained to Caesar's personal guard when he was in house arrest in Rome, the second imprisonment. He had three imprisonments at least. He was under house arrest, but he was chained. And because he made his appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen, not to the other jurisdictions, they put him under house arrest and it required Caesar's personal guard to watch over Caesar's prisoners. And this is the Praetorian Guard. And the Praetorian Guard, the Caesars used to actually go into all the different provinces, and they were a bit like, like um, ASIO or uh, ASIS, the secret services of the, of the Australian government. They go to places. So they would go to the particular police centres and political centres where the emperor was, was to, to rule and to see whether there was any seditious behaviour. So they were the cops on the beat that were Caesar's eyes and ears out in the provinces. So they would always be, there's about, I think there's about 30,000 to 50,000 Praetorian guard. And they guarded Rome, they guarded the emperor, and he needed their support, paid them well. And so they went and they were to ensure unity in the empire. It was these people that were chained to Paul. And do you know what Paul did? He said, oh, woe is me. I'm chained. I'm a prisoner. I'm helpless. His attitude was, man, alive. What an opportunity. These guys are chained to me. They're my prisoners. <laughs> and you know what? He loved them. He ate with them. He talked with them. He shared Jesus with them. And many of them accepted Christ as their saviour. Many of them. In the final verse of Philippians chapter 4, he says, hey, all the saints here in Rome salute you, especially those of Caesar's household. He would get them saved, but they'd be on rotation. So one would get saved, and then he'd probably have to go to the province of Judea or the province of Britain. And so what do you do if you're a new convert and you're part of the Praetorian Guard? You witness and you share. The gospel penetrated the whole Roman Empire under Caesar's nose using his own Praetorian Guard. Isn't that amazing? So Paul, Paul sees these soldiers and the imagery says, man, look at that armour, the belt of truth. You know where he hangs, every, the belt of truth, the belt, the girdle of the armour, that's truth. Then the breastplate, that's righteousness, our right standing with God. And then um, the helmet of salvation, shoes shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and the shield of faith, sword of the spirit. And he actually takes all the imagery and says, we're an army, we're the army of the Lord. We're a bride. Loved, we're a body to function, we're an army on the offensive. The church is moving forward. The Christian Family Centre started 42 years ago with 15 teenagers in the, in the back shed of someone's home. There are now over 3,000 people part of the Christian Family Centre churches. And we have plans to plant a whole stack of churches throughout the greater Adelaide area and beyond. And in more indigenous communities, the church is on the move. No devil can hold us back, no man can hold us back. One day you're going to have a fabulous property that will probably seat around 500 or so people. It's probably going to be worth a couple of million dollars, maybe more. It's going to happen. 
You say, where? I don't know where. How? I don't know how. But God will work miracles, as he's done with us. And so, so the church is on the move. We're, we're, not, we're not the tail. We're, we're, we're the dog. We're, we're in charge. Jesus is the victor. He's coming back again. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to him, and he's delegated that to us as his army. But we're an army of love, an army of peace. We're not an army with violence, an army with coercion. It's non-coercive love. We share the message of the gospel. Christ-likeness involves being a powerful witness to the truth and living by the truth. So church, are you growing in Christ-likeness individually? Do you see yourself as a bride? Loving your bridegroom and experiencing his amazing love through the Holy Spirit in you? Do you see yourself as a functioning body? Do you see what part you play for the body to function well? Do you see yourself as an army? Each of you can be a witness to the truth to somebody in your world for this year. By the end of this year, God may use you to lead somebody to a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can't make it happen. All you can do is walk the talk and make sure what you say you live. Be an effective witness by your life and also by your words, but pray that God will guide you. Invite people to church. You might say, oh, hey, the worst thing that can happen is they say no. Do you know why people don't come to church? Because they're not asked. Most people will actually come to church, not strangers, but people that you know and you're credible with and you have a relationship with. Don't be like one of our bosses at church and a businessman who said to me, Pastor Billy goes, I figured out why none of my workers come to church when I invite them. And they tell me, I'd like to learn. He goes, well, I've got a, he's got about 30 workers. He goes, I only talk to them when I invite them to church. He goes, I just figured I don't have breakfast. I don't have coffee with them. I don't buy them gifts. I don't connect with them. They're, they're my... And he goes, they're polite. They say, well, think about it. None of them have come. And I said, well, that's... You, you've got to be there. You, if you see yourself as the boss and you're not connecting with people and loving them and helping them and talking with them and building a relationship, why would they want to come? So if you're a good lover of people and you're connecting with people and talking with them and then there's a, there's a key event at church or something, invite them to come. And you never know, through your witness, your credibility and your invitation, they may even come to Christ. Wouldn't it be great? There's nothing greater than to be used of God to lead one person to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God can use you. You're his army. Don't be passive about it. Pray and believe and ask God to give you wisdom. Who you should invite? And uh, you never know what might happen. So are you growing in Christ-likeness? How are we really doing as a church? We need to be honest and own up to our own weaknesses and invite the Holy Spirit to help us. And I try and do this using the Acts 2 passage. Say, okay, I don't have it all together. I'm learning. How can I do things better? How can our church do things better? And I pray you do the same. Use that as a... That's the best way to develop strategy, is follow the biblical pattern. And I tell you, the Holy Spirit will use you powerfully. Can you say amen to that? Let's stand together. I'd like to lead you in a prayer. close our eyes and reflect for a few moments on on the importance of this day and some of the words that I've shared just in your heart now just talk to the Lord if he's been speaking to you today 
through something that I've said, an understanding, you've gained some understanding about being his bride, his body, his army. You might be reflecting and saying, you know what? I'm not growing in Christ-likeness in this area. I am in this area. Ask the Lord now to help you. Be honest regarding your weakness. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for humility and an openness and an availability. And the Holy Spirit will help you to grow to become more and more like Jesus. You're part of this body. You have a vital role to play. You have a gift that needs to be deployed to help people to bring glory to Jesus. You're an army going out there, winning battles. The battle's been won through Jesus' life, death and resurrection. We now enforce his victory. We proclaim life. We, we, we show people about his love and tell them what he's done for us. You're his army. And if he's saying to you, it's time to move forward, it's time to mobilise at work, at home, with your family, with your friends. Talk to him now. Say, Lord, I, 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 I yield to you in this area. Help me to be a good combat warrior as part of your army. Help me to be a functional member of the body. That I'm not useless. That I am important. That you don't create duds. That every part of the body is important and has a role to play. Or maybe you need to just revel in the love that he has for you and understand what it means, how he loves you profoundly. He is the bridegroom, you're the bride. You're the apple of his eye. He thinks of you. He prays for you. He's on your side and he wants you to understand his love for you and then you will be able to respond back in love and worship. Father, I pray for every man, every woman, every teenager, every guest who's here today. Lord, I know that you've spoken to them and I pray now as they in their hearts talk to you and say, yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus, I will follow you. Yes, Jesus, help me to be better aligned. Yes, Jesus, I want to be a really beautiful bride. I want to be a functional member of the body. I want to be an army that enforces the victory of Christ and proclaim his truth. Lord, I pray, bless every person, bless every family, enable them, empower them, help them to be all that you want them to be, that we all will become more and more like Jesus Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Guys, if anyone here wants to talk to me afterwards about maybe receiving Christ as your saviour, I'd love to talk with you. Uh, we're not going to have a ministry time today, but I'd love to share with you. Also, if you want to grab one of the books, I'll even personally sign it and put a little love comment to you, something loving towards you, okay? And, uh, um, and I, I trust. And also, I would love any response back from you because when we do the second edition, I want to improve it. So if you find an error or if you find something you don't understand, let me know because I'm trying to express concepts to help people understand the beauty and wonder of Jesus' church. It's been a joy to share and minister with you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Bill. And, uh, thank